Christ is risen. He is risen indeed at the end of first service. Um, I got down here and I did a big exhale. And then I remembered this is my first time preaching two services this go round. I got to do it all again, y'all. So we're going to see because I feel really free right now. Well, we're going to hope it's free in the spirit. <laughs> It is good to be with you. How many of you in this series on 1 John have been tracking by reading along yourselves? By the way, it's not too late to go ahead and start. You can catch up in about 12 minutes, okay? Um, I recommend beginning that after service, not right now. But I would encourage you to read the book of 1 John just as many times as you can. If you don't know what to read when you sit down to read the scriptures, read 1 John until the message... I, I thought I was going to sit. I ain't going to do it, y'all. It's not going to happen. Let me move it. <clears throat> do it until the Spirit awakens the revelation of the message inside of you. That's what's happened to me, at least in part, this week. I don't want to be so presumptuous to say I have gained the revelation as if there is one to gain. But some things that I, I thought I knew had been awakened the more that I have sat in 1 John 3 in particular this week. One of the things that I noticed as I was reading over 1 John is that, man, he repeats himself a lot. Have y'all noticed that? 1 John, or his name is not 1 John. His name is John, okay? John repeats himself a lot. And it's really a stark difference from the letters of, say, the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul writes in what we would consider a very Western approach, a very linear argument, making this point where he starts with his greeting, of course. He has his proper British greeting, and then he goes to his first point, and then he has his little if-then statement, and then he moves to his second point. But John doesn't do that. John's kind of all over the place, and he recycles the same message, but with a slightly different angle, multiple times throughout the book. And this is actually a literary device called amplification. And John really has very few ideas. They're rich ideas, and they're very important ideas. But he keeps recycling these themes of light and life and love your neighbor as the embodiment of Jesus. And he recycles them almost like he's drawing a star, connecting them one to another and one to another, back and forth and back and forth, so that we can see how they relate to one another. And one of these ideas is that John is the only one in this congregation or multiple congregations of people to which this sermon is written who has seen the embodied resurrected Christ. I mean, think about what it would have been like to actually see the embodied resurrected Christ. But John is the only one they're now so far removed that the people he's writing to are one or even two generations removed from the ascension of Jesus. And so John knows that they are not going to see Jesus until he returns. And as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a story. My daughter, a couple of years ago, about three and a half years old, right before Easter, Bonnie, my wife, was reading to her the Christmas, or not the Christmas, maybe both, maybe all the stories from Christmas to Easter. But the Easter story and Eloise, this idea of coming back from the dead hit her. 
I mean, to us who have been in church, it's kind of like, yeah, like Lazarus was resuscitated and Jesus was resurrected like we know the thing. But to a kid, can you imagine the resurrection? So I get home from work and she goes, Dad, Jesus came back from the dead. And I said, yes, he did. How did you find this out? She said, well, Mommy read me the story in my children's Bible. Do you think he'll be there at church on Sunday? To which I responded and put on my academic hat and said, well, Eloise, Jesus is at church every Sunday, sweetie. And she goes, Dad, no, the real Jesus. But what that gets at is exactly what John knew, that nobody from then on is going to see the embodied real Jesus apart from seeing Jesus in you. The Jesus that this congregation to which he writes in 1 John, no one would have seen Jesus in the flesh apart from what they see in them his believers, his followers, as Paul says, the body of Christ, the temple of the Spirit, those in whom God dwells. Another uniqueness to John's theology is that most of us, if we were raised in evangelical churches, the gospel that you were raised on probably sounded something like, and I'm going to oversimplify just for the sake of time, but it sounded something like in the beginning, God created the world and God created man and God created boundaries for man to not transgress. And obviously man was going to transgress the boundary. And so Satan comes into the grand courthouse of heaven and says, your honor, These people you have created have transgressed your boundaries. What are you going to do about it? Then the father says, oh, no, you're absolutely right. I've got to do something, but I just created them like last week. So (laughs) this is silly, I know. But eventually he sends Jesus, and Jesus lives a perfect life, is crucified, buried, and resurrected. And Jesus comes into the grand courthouse of heaven, and Jesus says something like, you're right, they transgressed, but I did it perfectly for them, and I have taken on their punishment, so they can now go free. The gospel that many of us heard sounded something like that, that we were sinners, that we owed something because of our transgression, and now that something has been taken away. And that's not incorrect. It's just one angle of an atonement theory, one way of seeing salvation. John's way is perhaps quite a bit different Not contradictory, just different. It's a little more Eastern, a little more organic. John believes that when we come into the faith, God doesn't just remove the sin or the debt or the transgression, but God actually gives us his own life. And when God's own life is at work in human beings, it looks like something. John believes that we are the representations of Jesus, not just because we've been commissioned, but because God's own life, his DNA, has been placed inside of us. And he's calling these people to live from that place within themselves. So with that said, let's look at 1 John. Now that I've preached the whole message, let's look and read some scripture, yeah? 
Chapter 3, we're only going to read verses 1 through 3 here at the beginning. Actually, verses 1 and 2. And then at the end of the message, when we come to the table, we'll read a good chunk more. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pause and pray for just a moment. Lord, thank you for the gift of your spirit and the gift of this text that has been passed down from generation to generation as the inspired word, an inspired epistle, a letter from the hand of St. John as the spirit rested on him. I believe that there is a word for us today, perhaps many words, and I pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are softened to receive the seeds of the gospel today. Would you open our eyes, open our ears, and water the fruit and the seeds that have been planted, and we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Together, God's people say, Amen. Amen. So what does John want us to hear? Well, I think the first thing John wants us to know is that whoever is in Christ is fully a child of God right now. That there are no stepchildren, that there are not phases or degrees or tiers of children in the family of God, that those who are in Christ are fully children of God. There's a popular Maverick City song right now that says, I'll never be more loved than I am right now. And if we're referring to the love that God has for us, that is absolutely true. And what is also true is that you will never be an ounce more a child of God than you are right now. That there are things in our future, our inheritance, as Paul calls it quite often, that are stored up for us, that are waiting, but our identity is not one of those things. That we are fully God's children. He says it three times in this passage. We are God's children There is something that needs to be unlocked in many of us. Excuse me. See, preaching two services, my voice wasn't ready yet. My spirit man is ready, but my voice ain't ready. There is something in many of us that believes that we are children in part, and one day we will be children in full when we are perfected. And that is simply not true. Paul, John... Jesus, Peter, they all come against this notion because they know the temptation for the people of God is to look at the fruit of their life and go, it's just not enough. It's just not what I thought it would be. The fruit of my life doesn't look like the fruit of someone who is fully in Christ, who is in God. Am I really who you say I am? which is why we have a great song we sing all the time that says, I am who you say I am. Because every one of us need to be reminded regularly, you are not the worst or even the best of your decisions. 
you are not the accumulation of what you have or the fruit of the accumulation of what your life has done and produced. You are none of those things. God doesn't just, as Pastor Jade said on Easter, he brings us into a new family and gives us a new name. Absolutely true. He doesn't do that by cattle branding us, by wiping away our sin and cattle branding us. He does that by putting his own life inside of us so that if you cut your spirit man open, God's DNA is inside of you. More changes than just your name. The life of God is inside of you. And the author here is saying, guys, you are now children. We're not waiting for something else to happen for you to be fully children of God. And here's this beautiful introduction that in the NIV says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Nothing wrong with that. To most of our ears, it's, oh, how nice. But the Greek is actually something a little more like, from what foreign land could this love have come that the Father has lavished on us? It reminds me, Rachel will remember, when I was working at Or Roberts University, the president used to say that ORU is the greatest universe or the greatest university. Man, I botched that punchline just like Daniel Grothy did on Friday night. <clears throat> but he would say, This is the greatest university on this earth or any parallel universe. And we all thought it was funny and we thought it was cute. But then we started to believe that about ourselves. Like, man, there's no university that could even be created on Mars that's better than this place. <laughs> and this is something like what the author is getting at. This love, this divine display of hospitality is more than God just saying, you don't have to go to hell now because of all the bad things you've done. But now I am welcoming you into my family and making you my heirs. This kind of hospitality couldn't have come from anywhere but a parallel universe. The heart of God, of course. Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. An heir means that God's resources are now stored up and available to you. Romans 8, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, I'm not going to spend much time preaching that, but another message for another day. Here's what we are to take away. Being heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ means all that God has done for Jesus and all God is giving and has given to Jesus, he intends to do for you and give to you. That what is true for Jesus right now will be true for you. That Jesus, as a man, God-man, was crucified and was dead. Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. God sent his spirit to breathe life into Jesus' mortal body to resurrect him from the dead. And Paul says over and over again, he is the first fruits of the new creation, the first fruits from among the dead. 
What is true for Jesus now will be true for all of us who are in Christ one day. What God has given to Jesus now, Jesus turns around and gives to us, his co-heirs. God doesn't just give you a new name. He gives you his own life, and he gives you his resources. You will never be any more or any less a child of God than you are right now. But then there is this turn, and it comes out of nowhere. The second half of that verse, of verse 1, if we can put that up, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Now, that's not a natural outflow from the previous sentence. It's clear here that John is addressing some kind of context that we're unaware of. But through the context of the whole letter, we can put pieces together that something like the following was true. It implies that they weren't easily identifiable to the world, A, or that the world didn't identify them in ways that were advantageous to them, or that seemed comparable to what it is to be an heir of God. One of those two things is true. So he says, you are children of God now. Don't worry. The fruit of your life doesn't seem to be doing a lot, but it's okay. The world doesn't seem to recognize you. The world doesn't say, oh, behold, a child of the living God. That's okay. They're just treating you like they treated Jesus. Sometimes that's consoling, but sometimes that's not consoling because Jesus ended up dead on a cross. I hope that doesn't happen for any of us. But the truth is in that verse in Romans 8, 17, that the way that we enter into the inheritance of God is by suffering with Jesus. That Jesus' power is available to us, but Jesus' power doesn't look like skating on the surface of life, not really being impacted by anything negative because we have God's power. God's power sometimes looks like miracles, which we prayed for today and we will continue praying for. God's power also sometimes looks like the power to endure, the power to suffer at length the power to be disrespected and dishonored and yet turn the other cheek. And when that happens to you, fear not. You're in the best company. They're just doing to you what they did to Jesus. Being God's child means that your life is so bound up with the life of Jesus that how the world saw him, they should begin to see you. That your life is so bound up to the life of Jesus that if Jesus were alive in your body in 2023, they would be treating you just like they treat him. That's what it is to live in Christ as Christ is in the Father. That's what John is calling us to. Whatever the world thinks of you, it's okay because there's no better company to be in. And I'm not talking about my company. I'm talking about being in the company of Jesus, the living God, the one who suffered, the one who underwent all kinds of evil, not just so that we wouldn't have to, but to show us how to, to empower us to follow after him. Whoever is in Christ is fully a child of God right now. Number two, verse two. Let's read verse two again. Dear friends, Now we are children of God. There's that amplification again. 
And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Number two, things are not as they will be when Christ returns. So our identity is solidified right now, in this moment. We are not waiting to become sons and daughters of God anymore. But we are waiting on some things. We are waiting on the return of Christ. We are waiting on the fullness of our inheritance. We are waiting on the world to be restored. Many theologians, when they talk about this, they will talk about it in this phrase, the already but not yet kingdom. And what they mean is that the kingdom of God is present among us, but it is not present in fullness. The kingdom of God right now is like little sprouts breaking up through the lives of the people of God when they are joined in partnership with the power of the Spirit and they do something and they, they channel or the channel of the life of God is channeled through them and forgiveness happens. Somehow new life happens. People's eyes figuratively are opened and they come into the kingdom of God. When bodies and minds are healed, when lives are restored, when relationships are restored, these are the outbreaking of the kingdom of God where the seeds that have been planted are breaking forth. But there is coming a day when the whole thing will be made new. And that's the day we're looking at and we're waiting for. And we live in this tension of the already and the not yet. And we experience this tension, I think, at least in these two ways. Number one, we are not yet perfected like Christ. Some of us in the room are longing and frustrated with ourselves because there are things in our lives that we assume should be better or different about us because we are children of God that simply will not be until Christ returns. And I can't tell you what those things are, but what I can tell you is that the Apostle Paul wrestled with God and said, I have this thorn in my flesh which theologians and biblical scholars have speculated on for 2,000 years. We have no clue what that thorn in the flesh was, and I think that's intentional. Because all of us has something in our story we wish were different. There's some impulse in us that we can work on, but we can never be fully rid of. There's some part of our personality, there's some lie that we believe that we keep bringing back to the cross, we keep bringing back to Jesus, we keep submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're saying, God, get rid of this thing. And God's response is, one day I will. But right now, my grace is sufficient. I don't know why that happens. I don't know how God chooses what things he wants to heal in a moment what things he wants to heal over the course of our lives and what things he will wait until eternity, I don't know. What I do know is that as long as there are thorns in my flesh and yours, we can never stray too far from being reminded we are fully dependent on God. We need his grace so much. The second way that we experience this tension is that the world around us is not yet renewed. So the first way is that we are flawed. We are not yet perfected, though we are fully children of God. The second way we experience that tension is that the world is quite obviously not all right. If you've been alive for like 10 minutes, you know what I'm talking about. 
Sometimes we pray for healing and it happens in a moment. Sometimes we pray for healing and it happens through a doctor. Sometimes it happens over the natural course of our lives, us gaining health and things just, we don't deal with them again. And sometimes we have these ailments for our entire lives. And how and why, what is healed and what has changed, I don't know. What I do know is that God wants us to ask. God wants us to fall back on him and say, God, would you come? Would you touch this thing? Would you heal this thing? And if it doesn't happen the way that we want it to happen or how we think it should happen or how we've imagined it happening, we remember that our faith is not in an outcome because God is not finished doing what God can and will do yet. And so we fall back on him and we live in this tension and we live in a broken world where people wound us all the time. The power of the spirit that is inside us does not keep us from being wounded. It empowers us to turn back to God to find our healing when we've been wounded. That's the mark of the people of God. God empowers us to forgive when we've been wronged. That's the mark of the people of God. So the world, we are waiting on the world to be renewed. And for John, it seems by reading the context of this letter that faith for John is doing what's right and trusting God with the outcome as we wait. It seems, based on what he continues to write, that John is pressing them, keep giving to the needy. If you see a need, why would you not meet it if you have resources? Jesus laid his life down for you. I think one of the things they're wrestling with is the seemingly insignificant nature of their existence. Like God, we keep doing what we've been taught to do and it doesn't seem to be making that much of a difference. Are, are we really doing this right? Because the temptation, like it was for Adam and Eve, and the temptation particularly for Jesus and Matthew 4 and Luke 4, is to go, you know what? I can get this done a lot quicker, a lot larger scale, a lot more magnitude. We can do this in ways where we can really reach a lot of people a lot quicker. But in doing so, we end up actually compromising the way and the message. The temptation is to quit doing it because it doesn't seem like their lives are actually heirs of God. It doesn't seem like the fruit their lives are producing is in alignment with the work of Jesus' ministry. But remember this, 90% of Jesus' ministry was lived in complete obscurity. Jesus going to Torah school, Jesus learning carpentry skills, Jesus getting lost in the temple, Jesus wandering around playing with his younger siblings. And then that other 10%, he did a lot of significant things. Almost never was he actually understood. Almost never was he appreciated. Never did it gain him favor. We are in good company when our lives look insignificant as we wait on the fullness of the kingdom of God to come with Christ. We are co-heirs with the one who showed us how to do these things. And he's opening up space to do it again 
now, even if it seems to not be doing anything productive. Seth, if you would come. We're not closing quite yet, but we're, we're landing the plane. The plane is now descending. <clears throat> so we are fully children of God, and yet we are waiting on things to be what they will be when Christ returns. So what is John's charge? What is his admonition to us in the meantime? This is where we live. We live in the Advent season, the perpetual Advent of the meantime. How are we to live? I think to sum up all of chapter 3 in one sentence, it would be something like this. Guard the seed of God's life within you by obeying and repenting and doing what's right by your neighbor. I want to pick back up in verse 3, and we'll read a chunk, and then we'll prepare our hearts to come to the table. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope, the hope of Christ returning to make us new and all things new, purifies himself, just as he, Christ, is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. No one who is born of God will continue in sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. In John's epistles, what is sin? Sin is that which disrupts or smothers or covers or seeks to restrict the seed of God which is in all of us who are following Jesus which is why John harps on sin so much. He's not a moralistic person concerned with perfection. He wants the seed of God that is in the people of God to sprout and to blossom. And he knows that sin is the thing that comes in and obstructs it. Sin turns our attention away from the work of God inside of us and pulls us to that which is out there. And John is saying, God is in you as you are in Christ, as Christ is in the Father. Live from that place. You know, this passage is historically read on All Saints Day. Now, I grew up as a traditional Pentecostal and did not celebrate All Saints Day. But I have learned to appreciate some of these high holy days. And so I was thinking as we were sitting down there in worship in the first service, what is a saint? And who are some of the saints I know? They're not perfect people. Matter of fact, if you think throughout the course of Scripture, apart from Jesus and perhaps Mary, every person who is portrayed as a hero in our felt Bible stories, the felt Bible stories you know in kids' ministry, I see you, Rachel, and Dr. Michelle over there, every one of them was a deeply flawed person. From Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Elijah to Paul to Peter, Every single one of them. Being a saint is not about being perfect. Being a saint, as I wrote it here in the first service, 
Saints are those who image Jesus to the world through their constant responding to divine love. The responding in moments where they get it right looks like obedience. And their responding in moments when they get it wrong looks like repentance and confession. Friends, God is not calling you to be perfect. That day awaits us in the future. He is calling you to live in the light. And that happens when the seed of God's life inside of us is watered. When we pay attention to that seed. When we say, Holy Spirit, would you lead me from this place, not from that place? Let me not be pulled in those ways that the world pulls us. But we want to walk in the light as you are in the light. If you would stand, communion attendants, prepare to come. I was thinking about some of the saints that I have known. The saints that I have known, their lives have not looked like anything very significant while they were alive. One of those, if you've been with us a while, a man by the name of Don Patterson, who passed away about two years ago. Don lived his life primarily as a missionary to various countries in Africa. Don built Bible schools. He suffered for Jesus. And I don't know that I've ever met a more joyous person. Don passed away a few years ago. Don is a saint. I was thinking I lost both of my grandfathers last year. Both have followed Jesus for more than probably 70 years. They both died in their late 80s. Saint Jean Petty and Saint Bill Swindle. And these were men whose lives didn't seem to mark their communities much. But you know what? My life is a product of their prayers and their faithfulness. I don't know all the things they got right, all the things they got wrong. What I do know is that both were men of prayer and men of repentance. And when they got things wrong, which I'm sure they did often, they came right back to Jesus. Because the call is not for perfection. The call is to live in such a way where the life and the light of God emanate from you. Guys, one day we will be with Jesus in the book of Revelation says that there will be no sun because he is the light. And his light is shared with every one of us. And right now it looks like a flicker. It looks like a candle. And we can nurture it. We can protect it. We can ask the spirit to breathe on it. But the day where we are ablaze like Jesus on the Mount Transfiguration, that day is ahead of us. But you'd be amazed what God can do with a few hundred flickering lights. You would be amazed. One of the ways that we can practice this allowing the divine life that is within us to emanate out from us is by praying a prayer of confession, by recognizing that somewhere, probably multiple wares in the last six days, did we get it wrong. Did we step over the boundary? Did we wound people unaware? I am certain I have done that. And so we pray this prayer of confession as a way of being reminded and reminding one another, it's okay that you're not perfect, Seth, because I'm not either. But as long as we turn to, Seth is closer than I am, by the way. But if we turn to God together, he will do what only he can do. So let's put the prayer of confession on the screen. 
Just look at it for just a second. And if you would, posture your hands open in a position of offering yourselves to God. We're called to live in the light. We're unafraid of God seeing our weaknesses. We're unafraid of God seeing the stains, the wounds, the scars, the places we've got it wrong. We say our whole selves are open to you, God. Now let's turn our eyes to the screen and let's pray this together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Well, let us come to the table of the Lord. You can exit out the left side of your row. Come and receive the elements and enter back on the right side and we will partake together.